Shrink Wrap Radio number 846, Connie Zweig, Ph.D., on Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Connie Zweig, PhD, and we'll be discussing Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, the Dance of Darkness and Light in our search for awakening. Within each of us is a spiritual longing that prompts us to unite with something greater than ourselves. Yet, no matter the spiritual path we choose, we inevitably encounter our own shadow. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Connie Zweig, welcome back to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, I say welcome back, because way back in 2011, I interviewed you on your then new book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. At any rate, today we're going to be discussing meeting the shadow on the spiritual path, the dance of darkness and light in our search for awakening. And uh, Connie, you've been a meditator for 50 years. And I love the way you've woven your own personal journey, your own spiritual quest into the narrative. And, uh, and also, this book is, um, goes into so much detail about the shadow and all of the pitfalls along the path and so on. And you really sort of slice and dice the shadow in, in a remarkable way. Uh, so I, I'm highly recommending this book to one and all. Thank you. Um, and you write that you have been insane for the light, like a moth to the, drawn to the flame. <laughs> and um, so in your prologue, you talk about your years. Uh, you begin it when you were a student at UC Berkeley, and, and you write about these years of uh, when you were driven by holy longing, and we'll, we'll have more to say about holy longing as we go along, but perhaps you can kind of take us through those early years. Uh, Yes, well, the book is, um, it's not so much autobiographical. My story is kind of an example, one example of many people, especially in our generation, the boomer generation, (laughs) but also, you know, but also younger people now who feel this restless yearning, who 
say to themselves, there's something more. There's more to life than materialism and consumerism um, and work and family. And there's a mystery uh, about life that we want to understand. Right. For me, you know, for me, that started in a particular way. I began Transcendental Meditation at age 19, as millions of people did, you know, in its heyday. Um, and that kind of set me on a trajectory of exploration, of purpose and meaning. So my meaning was built into my life when I understood that spiritual advancement or higher stages of consciousness were available and were sort of the hidden, the mystery that I was referring to. Um, and that the, the esoteric or hidden teachings from all the different religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Sufism, Buddhism, had become democratized. They were available in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And you and threw so, yourself into reading uh, all, so these, all these texts in. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And so that led me, like many people, to explore different practices and different teachers and to really, um, <clears throat> as you said, make of my life a quest. Yeah. And uh, did you go to India as part of that quest? I did go to India. Um, I uh, discovered that there was a man who held the lineage of Kundalini in India, and I went to see him in Rishikesh and study with him and traveled the country during that time. Yeah, and was this uh, uh, Maharshi who uh, the Beatles were so influenced by? No. So... Maharishi was my early in my early 20s with Transcendental Meditation. And I was involved with that for about a decade. I, yeah. taught, I became a teacher. I taught people how to do TM. But I also encountered a lot of shadow in that community, in that organization. And so I left after a decade. And it was a very painful separation. Um, I lost all my friends and my practice and my um, my community and for a while my purpose because it was anybody who has been part of a church community or a spiritual community um, knows how hard it is to separate because it's like a family right. and you, you lose precious um, knowledge and experience and relationships. So that was a difficult separation for me. I was about 30, in my early 30s when that happened. And, but, you know, when I look back now with 74 years of life experience, I see that it was perfect, that that exit opened other doors. And, well, it certainly you know, opened up the an understanding of the shadow, and and all right. the writing, all the writing and exploration that you've done uh, around right. that. And uh, what I read in your book was that this period of disillusionment lasted about ten years, about a decade, and um, and so what 
how did you get out of that? I read the book, so I know how you got out, but I want to ask the question anyway. Yeah. So I think that this is a very common experience that's not spoken about very much. Um, there is literature now about people who are leaving fundamentalist Christian communities yeah. beca because of their disillusionment with their clergy or their beliefs. Um, people who are leaving Orthodox Jewish communities for those reasons. Um, they encounter abuse or they lose their faith for some reason. And it's, it's the same with Eastern traditions. So in the Zen communities, in the Tibetan Buddhist communities, in the shamanic and Hindu uh, Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta communities, there are people who become disillusioned and lose faith. And for some people, it's more traumatic than that. Some people really experience religious abuse and post-traumatic stress and um, you know, suffer for a long time, really intensely, physically, emotionally, and mentally. So what I wanted to do with this book was look at the patterns across the denominations because most books are written for one denomination. You know, so if you're leaving fundamentalist Christianity, you can find a book about that. But I wanted to, as a psychologist, I wanted to use depth psychology, which is my orientation to the unconscious or the shadow. So what is happening in the shadow when we join a community, when we fall in love with a teacher, when we meet a shadow and when we decide we need to separate and move to another stage of life or we decide we want to stay and work on repairing the community what is going on in the unconscious around those that that pattern in the human journey yeah and you so know I, I i wanted to uh, uh my question was how you got out of that and in the book, I was intrigued to see that uh, a Jungian, you, you went into Jungian therapy and that played a big role. And the shadow, of course, is a, is a very big Jungian concept. So tell us a bit about the shadow, you know, the, the, uh, the, yeah. the theory behind the shadow. So when I was in my 20s in the spiritual community, Everything was all light and bliss. Yes. And yes, I everybody that. was everyone was going to become enlightened and change the world, save humanity. Um, and when I kind of woke up to the falsity of that or the one-sidedness of it, um, I found a Jungian analyst. I had been reading Carl Jung. And she began to help me work with my dreams <clears throat> and encounter these parts of me that had been hidden because they were unacceptable or unwelcome as I was living this spiritual life. How could I be spiritual if I felt envy or depression or anger? Mm. They didn't fit the spiritual persona. And that's true for a lot of people. A lot of feelings and behaviors and traits get buried when we're in spiritual community. 
and we're just taking on what the teacher tells us is okay. Yeah. Like we did as kids with our parents, right? We did that with kids, shape, as kids, we were shaping the ego to get love and approval. Well, we do the same thing with a spiritual teacher. And so we form a spiritual persona and a lot of material gets buried in the unconscious shadow. And we now know that the mind and body are functionally identical. So the shadow is not a little corner of the mind. It's, it's in all of us. Uh-huh. It's in our muscles. It's in our nerves. It's in our subtle body. It's in our chakras. So there's shadow material in every chakra. And what happens is um, eventually some of that material erupts into awareness. And we might act it out by saying something mean or critical or getting caught in an addiction or getting angry out of control. And so that no longer fits who we think we are as spiritual beings. And there, and there becomes, there arises a tension between who we think we are or who we want to be and what's coming up from the shadow. Yeah, and it can be experienced as a crisis, right? As a life right. crisis. It's an identity crisis. It's a crisis of meaning. Yeah. And, you know, so I experienced that when I left my first community. And then I experienced that when I saw the shadow in teachers and other teachers, teachers who were verbally abusive or contemptuous or um, accumulating wealth from their students. Yeah. Buying Rolls Royces, you know, and sitting on golden crowns while people were doing seva, working for free for them for service, out of service. So I began to become very interested in why are we drawn to that? And why do we turn a blind eye to it? What is it in us that denies that this is taking place so that we begin to split between good and evil. I interviewed many, many people and they would say things to me like, if my teacher was an alcoholic, he couldn't be enlightened. Or if my teacher, you know, kicked that student or assaulted her, like she said, you know, he wouldn't be who he says he is and I, all of my life would be worthless. And so we start making this split between how it should be and how it really is, and we can no longer see how it is. Yeah, and, and you point out in the book that a lot of it is actually structured into by the teachers into the practice. You know, okay, this is, uh, uh, I am the authority, and, uh, and you need to accept that. And in fact, that's the proof of your devotion to me and the guarantee of uh, permanent enlightenment. That's right. So there are many kind of layers to this, David. Yeah, um, yeah. There are teachers who have very advanced spiritual state experiences, but may not have established a high level of consciousness on a permanent level. They may not have um, done their psychological, emotional homework. Most of them haven't. 
So let's say they have authoritarian tendencies or they have narcissistic tendencies. They need to be adored or they need to feel like they're in control. And then they have dozens or hundreds or millions of people adoring them. And, and they, they, may, they may have come from a culture as well that that uh, reinforces all those ideas, right? So the cultural differences are another level of what's going on because a teacher may be born into a lineage that tells him from birth how special he is. Yeah. He may be born into a lineage that has sexual abuse going on in the monasteries. So there can be, and then they come to the West, I'm saying he, because most of them are men, they're not all men. They come to the West um, from a monastic situation and all these women are adoring them and dressed in almost nothing. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> right. And so there's this culture clash between the modesty and the license or, you know, the constraints and the freedom. And some of the teachers can manage it and some of them can't. And so they lose their way. And, you know, there's a big chapter in the book with many, many stories of teachers in every tradition. Now, there's no tradition that's immune to this, who have been accused of sexual assault, verbal assault, financial coercion, emotional coercion. And this question just stayed with me as I did this research. What draws us to these charismatic teachers? And why do we stay? And what causes these teachers, what triggers them yeah. to act out in these destructive ways? So there's this two-way thing happening. What is the vulnerability for us Westerners that so many of us are drawn to, to the religions of the East? Well, this again is very individual, but if we look at the, our culture that focuses on autonomy and independence and uh, freedom of think of thought, um, freedom of sexuality. What is in the shadow with all of that? What's in the shadow is dependency, feeling childlike, feeling certainty. And all of those things are arise or emerge in some people who find a teacher and a spiritual practice. I had people tell me, I'm so relieved I don't have to make my own decisions anymore. Yeah. I'll just do what he tells me. I'll just live the way he tells me to live. And so there's this unconscious desire in all of us to become a child again, Yeah. you know, <laughs> right? And to have right. someone we can fully depend on, someone who loves us unconditionally. And many people in our world come from families that are very dysfunctional, you know, where parents don't know how to parent in a healthy way. And so people join communities to be reparented. 
to find new families, you know, to create a different kind of bond. And it's very idealistic initially. And it provides a lot of meaning. And my point of view on this, David, is not like the cult literature. I am not telling people to get deprogrammed. This is not my position. My position is there's a lot of value to spiritual practice and spiritual community. And there's also a lot of risk. And so uh -huh. we, can, we can learn how to recognize the red flags, just like when we're dating. We can learn how to recognize the dangers and at the same time really um, find the value and the meaning in these beautiful, precious traditions. It's yeah. yeah, drawing from the, the from the Jungian tradition, uh, tradition uh, we have to come to a place where we can tolerate the tension of the opposites. And so, exactly. you know, how do you balance the fact that, uh, you know, these, these tensions uh, are being drawn towards these higher states and, and, and practices, and then hearing this news, this upsetting news about uh, your guru or, or, or your being rabbi. aware, uh, being aware, seeing things that, uh, that really shake your faith. Or your rabbi or your priest, you know? So my, my hope, you know, the subtitle is The Dance of Darkness and Light. Yes, beautiful. In our search for awakening. Yes. So I wanted to speak to people who are both um, inspired seekers and disillusioned seekers so that we can recover that longing. We can rekindle that longing for awakening because there are many, many people now um, waking up from ignorance, having experiences of non-duality, experiences of higher states of consciousness. It doesn't mean they should go and become teachers. I mean, that I think is happening at too fast a rate. Mm -hmm. I'm part of a community called Association for Spiritual Integrity, where we're trying to support people who are becoming teachers um, who need instruction in moral development and emotional development, because this is not offered by spiritual teachers, right? They teach spiritual development. But if you don't have psychology and your own inner work on your emotional issues, and if you don't have guidance for moral development, then you can really fall captive to your shadow. And that's yes. the risk here. Yes, yes. So uh, I was interested that you talk about the holy longing as as an archetype, as a spiritual archetype. And maybe you can talk about that a bit. Well, I borrowed that term from Goethe. He has a poem called The Holy Longing. And when I read that poem, I felt like it described um, the whispering of my own soul, that, that deep inner voice that longs for transcendence that longs for union with something beyond ego. And um, 
you know, whatever language our listeners use for that isn't the point to me. You can call it Buddha nature or Christ nature or Turiya or transcendental consciousness or pure awareness or loving awareness, like Ramdas called it. That's not the point. The point is that there is a part of us that's restless and yearning for that. And that's the holy longing. That's what I call the holy longing. And that that's the part of us that leads us, even unknowingly, to search, to find a spiritual teacher or practice and community, um, to find a religious discipleship, um, a clergy person, a mentor. And that's also the part of us that can keep us captive there for too long mm -hmm. after it becomes abusive mm -hmm. because we're still longing we're still hoping and we're still allowing ourselves to be blinded by the projection you know in psychology we talk about projection as um, unconsciously attributing a part of ourselves to someone else so if I'm attributing to a teacher or a clergy person, they have something I don't have. Let's call it the light or the spirit. So they have spirit and I don't have spirit. That's a positive projection. If we take it so far as to say they're divine, they're a divine human and I'm not, in Jung's term, we could call it an archetypal projection because it's no longer personal, it's their godlike, their archetypal. So when that happens in the relationship, um, that teacher is empowered and that student is disempowered and may become dependent on that relationship. And then little by little, the student gives up critical thinking. And the teacher may be very overt about that. I mean, Trungpa Rinpoche, famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher, used to say, your mind is, you know, a junkyard. Don't pay attention to your mind. Forget your thoughts. That's a waste of time. So if that's the teaching and you begin to ignore your thoughts, you begin to ignore your intuition, you begin to ignore your bodily cues that are telling you there's danger here, you begin to ignore your authentic feelings that are telling you this doesn't feel right, I'm uncomfortable, I'm unhappy, um, I'd rather be somewhere else, or your thoughts, you know, I'm, I don't disagree, I disagree with that. But your teacher or your scriptures are saying, don't pay attention to your thoughts. In fact, there are some scriptural teachings that say it's a sin to question the guru. You, we make a vow never to do that. So these things are built in, and these things are all pre-psychology, right? Psychology is only 100 years old. So these things are pre-psychology, but they're built into the systems. Yeah. And so it, the question becomes much bigger then. How do we create a spiritual teacher, student, and community 
that's really healthy and authentic and has integrity. If these things are built into the systems, how do we do that? Right. It's a big, so big I, task. It's a, it's a big task, right? Yeah, and in yeah. fact, it's a, it's a social justice issue. Um, there were some Buddhist teachers who handed a document to the Dalai Lama about all the sexual abuse in the Zen and Tibetan Buddhist communities, and they called it Me Too Guru. So they were saying, this is a social justice issue, this spiritual and religious abuse. So how do we... How uh, well, do we, how, how, how did the Dalai Lama deal with this? He shrugged and said, I knew about this. I don't know about this? No, he yeah. said, I knew about it. Oh, I knew about this. I knew about this for decades. He didn't do anything about it. Uh -huh. Why? Just because of what we're talking about. Because he would have had to take apart Tibetan Buddhism in America. If he had come out and said, this teacher and this teacher and this teacher are abusing their students and they can no longer teach, they no longer have my blessing, it would have been a disaster for him and for those communities. And so he did not do that. He did not come forward. Now, this touches on another point that you make in the book, that the these projections can be can cut both ways. They can be as damaging to the teacher or the guru or the priest as they are to their victims. Yes. Talk, talk about that. How's I th th think in the story of the of the Dalai Lama that you were telling that that kind of gives us a, a, a bit of a glimpse into that. Yes. Well, that was very disappointing to me to find out about that. Yeah. And then I recognize that there's still a part of me that's looking for someone who doesn't have a shadow. Of course right. he has a shadow. He's, he's human, right? Yeah. He's yeah. just like everybody else. He's not abusing it in the same overt way. But he is neglecting the needs of the Western Buddhist teachers by you know being complicit in silence so um in chapter five i explore many dozens of stories of these yeah, you do. Teachers. yeah. and you can see from those stories that it's not a two-way impact i mean that it is a two a, a two-way impact that the teachers themselves are unhealed that they are wounded healers or wounded teachers, that they may be struggling with narcissism. Osho Rajneesh was struggling with drug addiction. They may be actually be sociopathic, which means that they don't have a conscience in the way they're treating their students, which is, you know, in some cases just horrific, yeah. is um, a reflection of who they are and who they and how they were treated. We know that from psychology, right? The way that we're born and grow up and the way we're treated leads to who we become as adults. So these teachers um, may, may bring great value to the world like the Dalai Lama and so many others. They may, may bring great compassion and wisdom 
And at the same time, they have their blind spots. Um, there are some teachers who have been trying to make amends. So for example, Yogi Amrit Desai, who founded the Kripalu Yoga Institute on the East Coast, was discovered that he was having sexual relationships with students. First, he denied it. And then eventually, um, he admitted it. And he went through this whole process of psychotherapy for the whole community, bringing in consultants, trying to bridge psychology with his um, teachings. And there are other stories like that. Um, the LA Zen Center, Maizumi Roshi was discovered to be at 100 years old. He was having sex with students. And um, it was a scandal. The whole place blew up. And uh, the new Roshi who took over, who was a woman, um, reorganized the whole thing to remove the hierarchies, to change the dynamics between men and women. She introduced shadow work. So, and Andrew Cohen, who's another teacher who became abusive um, and um, has tried to make amends now, has a book out about trying to understand himself. And so there are some teachers who are gaining self-knowledge after falling from their pedestals. But I would say they're the exceptions, David. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it, it's not happening in great numbers. This raises for me an, another issue, which is the notion of uh, sort of state versus trait in a way, the idea of permanent enlightenment, that of the of the enlightened godlike being, as a psychologist, as a Western psychologist, I have difficulty buying that. Uh, I can buy that that people have momentary experiences of illumination, and maybe some more often than others. But um, where are you with that? Okay. So one other thing, and then I'll come to that. Yeah. So Catholic Church, you know, in the 80s, we went through this massive scandal of childhood sexual abuse by priests. And it continues to this day. There's still discoveries and lawsuits and so on. But what has happened to the institution of the Catholic Church? Nothing, as far as I know. They pay massive amounts of money. Is there, are there women becoming priests? No. Are they giving up celibacy? No. Have they really made any systemic changes? No. And for anyone who's interested in that, I recommend the movie that's streaming called Procession, which is about some boys who are now older men describing what happened to them yeah. as a result of sexual abuse in the church. Okay. So... The nature of awakening or enlightenment is a really complex and nuanced discussion, right? It's not simple. And for people who are really interested in this, I would recommend listening to the podcast, Buddha at the Gas Pump, that gas. Yeah. He has in he's interviewed 700 people 
who are having these experiences of higher states of consciousness or non-duality, whatever we call them. And most of them, like you said, are having temporary states that come and go. I've experienced them myself. Many people experience these kind of openings to, um, and some people experience them on psychedelics. These openings of the psyche, um, rising of the kundalini, um, releasing of the ego, and these experiences that are um, very different states from ordinary waking state. And then there are fewer people who begin to stabilize those states and who begin to live in them full time. And as I said in the book, I know some people very intimately who have attained very advanced stages. I call them like Ken Wilbur state stages rather than um, states and traits. So when you attain a stage uh, that's, let's say, a non-dual stage of awareness, um, it doesn't mean that your perception is always non-dual. What it means is that you have access to it. If you put your attention there, then you have access to it all the time. Uh -huh. Yeah. So it's, and I, I live with someone who experiences that. So it's very close to me firsthand. Um, it's not what we thought it was. So when I started TM at age 19 and all the sort of mythology that I had growing up with what is enlightenment, you know, it's not what we thought it was. It doesn't mean you're always happy or in bliss. It doesn't mean um, you have moral development and never do anything wrong, which was part of what I was taught. It doesn't mean um, you don't suffer. You know, my husband can be in these states and he can also have pain because he's ill. So I think that, you know, this conversation about states and stages is a really important one. And I tried in the book to um, kind of clarify the language, what awakening really means. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much misunderstanding about yeah. it. And it's kind of bandied about now as if everybody gets what it is. Yeah. Now, earlier you used the term shadow work. So uh, we need to touch on that uh, in a little more depth. Uh, what do you mean by shadow work? And what's the value of that? So, you know, my career has been about exploring the unconscious in a range of different ways. So my first book, Meeting the Shadow, was a collection of um, experts writing about the unconscious process in everyday life, in politics, in, in creativity, in relationships, and so on. And then my next book, Romancing the Shadow, which is an authored book, was about um, meeting the shadow in relationships. And how do we work with these parts of ourselves when they erupt? So a colleague and I developed a method that we called shadow work, which is about 
taking an aspect of this sort of grand amorphous abstract thing, the shadow, the unconscious, right? Taking a tiny part of it and being able to personify it as a figure by identifying what you're saying to yourself, what you're feeling and what you're sensing in your body when that particular part of the shadow comes up. So every time you criticize your husband, you start to identify the shadow figure there and you start to recognize when it comes up so that you can choose whether to criticize him or not. Or every time you wanna overeat, you start to recognize when the foodie comes up and you begin to work with that part of you so it's not unconscious anymore, you're making a conscious relationship with it. And you have more choice whether to eat that ice cream or not. And then the inner work of age was about meeting the shadows of age. So who's the inner ageist? The part of us that denies and um, dislikes growing older or the part of us that I call the doer that can't slow down when we are getting ready to retire. All the different parts of us that as we age are unconsciously affecting our experience of life as we age. So this book extends that work on these unconscious parts into our spiritual lives, into the religious arena and explores you know, how we meet the shadow in ourselves and in others in that domain. Do you know what your next book is? Is there another book in you, do you think? No. No, you're done I'm, with it? You've I'm written cooked. a lot of books. I'm cooked, yeah. Time for me to slow down. Time to yeah. slow down, time yeah. to accept that, yeah. Yeah, time to hang out with my honey. Uh-huh. And my well, grandkids. Well, you you've done um, you've done the world a great service with with the books that you have written, and there's Thank a lot you. of wisdom there that people can learn from. And certainly, this book is uh, I can kind of see this as a, a pinnacle of your journey of your work in that area. Thank you, David. Yeah. So, so I so, wanna I wanna offer an invitation to our listeners. Good. So if this is speaking to you, um, if you have experienced religious abuse or spiritual disillusionment or betrayal of some kind, um, and you feel some interest in reading this book, if you would like to do it in community, I'm going to be forming spiritual shadow work groups. Uh -huh. That will be, they will be online Zoom groups. They're free. Um, I'll connect you with other people in your time zone and you can go through the book together and I'll send you questions for each chapter that you can focus on as you do spiritual shadow work, as you begin to reclaim what you gave away in your projections and uncover how you might have gotten a little lost along the way and how you can really rekindle the flame of longing. I did that these groups... Yeah. Yeah, that's a great offer. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's a lovely extension of of yourself and of this work and of this writing this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so for people who would be interested in that, you can email me 
ConnieZweig at gmail.com. And I see I actually don't have my name on the Zoom, do I? So let me put it there. ConnieZweig at gmail.com. And if you would, please don't send me a long story. Just put spiritual shadow work group in the subject line and let me know your time zone. And I'll, I'll put you together with people on the West Coast or the East Coast, and I will send you guidelines to start a group. The book is available now for pre-order. It comes out just in a couple weeks. Okay, that's great to have all that information. Well, Dr. Connie Zweig, I wanna thank you for being my guest again on Shrink Wrap Radio. It's been a, a instructive and a delight. Dave, I'm so grateful to you. Another incredible interview, thanks to my recent guest, Connie Zweig, Ph.D., who discussed her latest book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light, in our search for awakening. This is a remarkable book that I recommend to one and all. I've done a number of interviews on Jungian themes, and so if you've been a listener for some time, you will already be quite familiar with this Jungian concept. You also will be familiar with the ins and outs of projection, especially in terms of the dynamics of psychotherapy with transference and countertransference. In her earlier books, Zweig has explored the shadow's role in politics, romantic relationships, work situations, and more. The focus in this current book is on the vicissitudes of the spiritual journey, and they are many. She has sliced and diced the variations to a fairly well. I was particularly interested in her personal journey. She shares that she has always felt called to spirit. As an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, she became enamored with transcendental meditation. She had been a political activist at the UC Berkeley in the turbulent 60s and then channeled all that same passion into TM and rising rapidly to the status of a teacher in that approach, as well as becoming a worshipful follower of a guru at an ashram in India. At some point, however, she became aware of inconsistencies and hypocrisies in that community, which triggered a 10-year disillusionment and depression. It was the wise help of a female Jungian analyst that got her out of that prolonged funk. She came to understand that the mismatches between her high expectations and human foibles of the leaders of her spiritual community in terms of shadow projections. In chapter two of her book, she catalogs documented instances of spiritual abuse, including sexual and monetary and other moral failings. The fascinating thing is these abuses could be found in every sect, not just the various flavors of Buddhist practice, but also among all the varieties of Christianity and Islam, etc. She later goes into the ways 
unrealistic projections get baked into religious organizations in ways that are designed both consciously and unconsciously to keep their flocks subservient, obedient, and in denial. She shows how culture, power, and gender tend to be involved in religious sexual abuse. She makes it clear that teachers who claim spiritual advancement or awakening are acting out their shadows. The cure for these ills is shadow work. Zweig and her colleagues have innovated their own shadow work protocol. She's generously making this available to you. On her website, she discusses the benefits of shadow work in the following terms. And here I'll read a long series of quotes from her website. Before shadow work, you are living an unexamined life. You automatically obey a shadow figure, overeating, criticizing yourself or your partner, blaming someone, procrastinating, which leads to uncontrollable self-sabotaging behaviors. After shadow work, you cultivate a deeper self-knowledge, communicate more constructively, break the cycles of pain in your relationship, and retrieve your lost creativity. The more conscious your shadow figure becomes, the more it loosens its grip, and the more self-directed your life becomes. Your shadow figures no longer sabotage your conscious intentions. The quote goes on, If you are struggling with addiction or other impulsive behavior, you may no longer fall under the sway of this shadow figure. If you're overwhelmed by anxiety or depression, you may uncover the shadow figure hiding in your moods and learn to tame it. If you're feeling shame and low self-esteem, you may find deeper self-acceptance. If you are single and dating, you may no longer obey the shadow figure that chooses unavailable or inappropriate partners. If you're committed slash married but unable to resolve conflict, you may detect the shadow figure that is angry or needs distance or feels judged or overwhelmed or abandoned and learn new tools to meet its needs. If you are in life transition struggling with direction, you may find a new orientation. If you're in a religious or spiritual crisis, you may discover new sources for renewal. Through local or global Skype telephone counseling, Dr. Connie invites you to explore your shadow as a mystery, not as a problem to be solved or an illness to be cured. When the other arrives, you can honor it as a guest and discover it comes bearing gifts, a deeper self-knowledge, and possibilities of a conscious life. Close quote. She invites you to tap into this experience via Zoom chats with other seekers in your local area. She suggests you simply drop her a succinct email at ConnieZweig at gmail.com. Don't tell your story. In the subject line, just put Spiritual Shadow Group and your time zone. She will put you together with other people in your time zone and send you instructions to start a group. 
Once again, I strongly encourage you to purchase Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening by Connie Zweig, Ph.D. And take note, she says this will be her last book. So get in on the goodness now. Hi, everyone. My name is Lara Just. I'm a qualified therapist in London, and I'm also just about to embark on a very exciting postgraduate research about therapists' use of client-generated metaphors. Next to this, I also work as a mind-body practitioner, coach, nutritionist, and change manager at a big NHS London hospital. I decided to support the work of Dr. Dave because his podcasts have been a staple nourishment, so to speak, for me throughout the past year or more. It's been so relevant for me and my training and personal development. I just love listening to one of his latest podcasts, especially while on a run along the river. I really enjoy Dr. Dave's way of engaging so personably with his interviewees, some of the most exquisite speakers in the field from around the world, the diversity and, and variety of topics and speakers really convey Dr. Dave's efforts to give listeners the breadth as well as some depth of knowledge. I also really like that Dr. Dave appears to be so open-minded, bringing in some newer thought models in the holistic and mind-body-spirit fields. For me, the podcast series has been fantastic. And if you think so too, please support Dr. Dave so he can continue with his amazing job. So get onto your smartphones or computer now, go to the Shrinkwrap Radio website and press on the green donate button. Really, it only takes a couple of minutes. Thank you, Dr. Dave. Please keep your podcast going with many more interesting topics and for many more years to come. Lots of love from London. Thank you, therapist Laura Just there in London. I'm glad you found so much of value in these interviews. Thanks for your donation and for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, Connie Zweig, Ph.D., for discussing her latest book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. It's chock full of important information for all spiritual seekers. And thanks also for her generous offer to create local Zoom shadow work groups for my listeners. Next week, my guest will be longtime family friend and yoga innovator, Lisa Knowlton, who will share her path of morphing trauma into spiritual growth. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.